for you. Okay. Tell me about them. All right, the first question. Isn't it true that the Bible has been corrupted over time? And now we have no idea what the original documents said. Hmm. That's a good question. It is. Um, so, uh, and, and thankfully I get to look at these questions beforehand because uh, uh, sometimes I need to prepare, right? Uh, so this question is one of those that a lot of people ask. Can we really trust the, the content of the Hebrew and Greek um, versions of the Bible that we see today? And uh, the answer is yes, we can trust it. No, it hasn't been corrupted. Um, there's uh, lots and lots and lots of evidence. In, in fact, the Bible is the most documented ancient um, work that we have. Things like the Iliad and, and other really old documents have a few copies, and, and we can trace the copies to, oh, within five or 500 or 1,000 years of the original writing of that document. Now, if you wrote an essay and somebody 500 years later handed somebody else a copy of that essay, would you be confident they would have your essay? There's a question mark, right? Um, so the Bible has a lot more evidence than that. Um, if you look at the records from the Bible, we have stuff that's within uh, 100 or 200 years of the original authors that wrote those books. And we have not five or ten like the Iliad. We've got thousands and thousands of, of, of examples of those texts. And in fact, uh, in the mid-20th century, they found uh, what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's a, uh, a cave in the Mediterranean area where they, they found a bunch of clay jars that were filled, uh, they were, had wax on them, they were sealed, and they were filled with um, lots and lots and lots of copies of the Bible. And these were some of the oldest documents that we've come to uh, in, in uh, archaeology. And we were able to see, look, this really, really old document um, it, it, compare that to the document that we were going by for translating the Bible that was much newer than that one, and they're pretty much the same thing. And the only differences that we find aren't significant, like meaning-changing kind of differences. They're, they're like a, a little notation by a scribe, and just looking at it, we can tell, oh, the, the scribe made a notation there, and if you compare it with another document, you're like, yep, sure enough, that one doesn't have it. A different scribe was trans, transcribing that one. And, and so we can, we can uh, find those little uh, nuanced uh, differences, and we can correct for them as we do translations. But translations is the other challenge with the Bible. And the question is, can we get a good translation? And here's what I'd like to suggest, that the, the translation problem is a difficult one. Because anytime you take one language and move it to a different language, you end up with both cultural and language um, challenges, potential for miscommunication. Um, for example, in, in the, the, the Hebrew language and the Greek language, there are nuances that the words allow for that English just isn't sophisticated enough to, to do. Um, if you speak a different language, you know the, the, the challenges with English. For example, English has one word for love, pretty much, and in Greek, you have four words that are translated into the English love. And so uh, translators have to be uh, careful to represent what the original author is trying to say and communicate it in a way that the English person who's reading it or the German person who's reading it or the, you know, 
person who speaks Spanish or Chinese or whoever, whatever translation they're doing um, can understand the original intent of the author. And, and it doesn't matter what translation you have. If you like it, that's great. But it doesn't matter what translation you have. There, are, there always will exist those communication challenges. And so the best, re, the best thing you can do is um, get a few resources like a Strong's Concordance or a, a Greek or Hebrew lexicon and uh, go back and find out what was that word and, uh, and then explore the possible meanings that can be applied there. And that'll help deepen your understanding of the text. And the second thing is, uh, don't just rely on one translation. Read a few and compare them. And it's when those translations disagree that you can say, oh, interesting. I need to explore that a little bit more. Um, so th- that's my suggestion. The Bible is accurate uh, to its original authors. It's, uh, and its accuracy is attested through lots and lots of research and uh, people that know things about ancient languages. Um, the, the translation is really quite good, and we can get the original intent of the original author from those translations. And then there's this verse in the Bible that, that I think we can trust, Isaiah 48, verse uh, 8. Sorry, Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. I think we can trust that. Amen. All right. We have a second question. Okay. What do the first and the second beasts mentioned in Revelation 13 mean? Great question. And uh, here's what I'm going to do. Instead of answering that one, I'm going to ask you to answer it. Um, I'm going to give you some tools to to interpret Bible prophecy, and I'd like you to go back to Revelation 13 and try to figure out what those beasts are. And uh, on a later night, we're going to talk about that. And I think from your study and what we do together, you'll say... It, that's exactly what it means. It's, there's no doubt. It's going to be crystal clear. Okay. We have a third question. Okay. Where did Cain find his wife? <laughs> this is one of those questions that lots of people have asked throughout the time. Thank you. Yes. Um, and uh, it's a conundrum, you might say, because of what you and I experience. Um, let's see. It was about Abraham's time maybe a little bit earlier than that, Noah or neighbor Abraham, sometime in there that the Bible says, don't marry your brother or your sister or your cousin, right? And, uh, and, and we know that that's scientifically a bad thing to do, to marry a sibling. And so we, we just don't even want to consider the fact, the, the idea that Adam and Eve were the only two people around to have kids, and, and Cain, if he was going to have a wife, and the Bible tells us in Genesis 4.17 that he indeed, indeed did have a wife, and he did, they did have kids. Um, so if, if Cain was going to have a wife and there's only Adam and Eve, then who would he have had to marry? A sister. And to us, that sounds repulsive. Well, I don't know. Um, hopefully it does. Uh, so there's problems, you know, congenital defects and, and issues that come, diseases that come because uh, of, of marrying somebody who's genetically very similar to you. And so uh, the law is no marrying your siblings. But that wasn't the case. And imagine Adam and Eve just off the production line, brand new, no problems at all, everything's perfect, there's no genetic anomalies to worry about. It's not going to be a genetic issue for uh, for Cain to marry a sister. And uh, the Bible tells us in Genesis 5-4 that Adam and Eve had sons and daughters. And we don't know when it was, but they would have been old enough probably to marry by the time the issue of Cain and Abel and Cain killing Abel happens. Um, so probably 
Cain already had a wife and maybe even had children by the time that he, um, had, had, that he killed Abel and God gave him that curse and, and sent him away. Um, because the Bible says when he went away, he went away with his wife. So that's what we know. Um, the only people around to marry would be a sibling, and, uh, and so we can trust, I think, that that's who he married. And aren't you glad that there are more options today? So tonight, we're going to be finishing our study on the time of the end. We started that last night. Tonight, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the book of Daniel and explore some comparisons to help us understand the, uh, the thing we left un, uh, undisclosed yesterday. So then on Sunday night, um, remember to grab one of, those, um, one of those updated schedules as you leave. I think the greeters will have them or they'll be on the desk there, but um, we're going to be at a different location, so make sure that you read that at the top and, and come to Cornerstone Christian School for this one. But Sunday night's going to be um, all about the day that Jesus returns. What does the Bible tell us? And I think you'll be surprised by how much detail the Bible has in there. And, and we're going to look at the things that we can know for sure, the certainties, and there's five of them the Bible describes about the second coming that can really nail this down, and, and we can know what God is telling us. Um, and, and maybe you've studied this subject before, and you just feel pretty confident you know exactly what the Bible says. There is so much information in the Bible about the second coming, I bet you'll learn something new. Now, then there's a uh, Tuesday night. Monday night we don't meet, so Tuesday night, Cornerstone Christian School is going to be the anatomy of evil. If you ever wonder why God has allowed sin and evil and bad things to happen, if God is good, why bad stuff, then uh, Tuesday night is going to be the night for you, and we're going to answer that in the anatomy of evil. Revelation chapter 12 gives us some of those answers, and we're going to find um, that God he has good reasons behind how he relates to us. And they are reasons that make sense and that reveal something about who he is. And I think sometimes we have a perspective of God that, is, uh, that the Bible doesn't encourage us to have. And we need to look at the Bible and say, what is this telling me about God? We're going to do a little bit of that tonight, but especially on Tuesday night, what does this tell me about God? Then Wednesday night, our subject is going to be the ultimate mind game. And if you struggle with temptation, I think you're going to appreciate this. We'll look at Revelation, the first few verses, and, uh, and we're going to kind of peel back the layers, and I'm going to show you some solid principles for dealing with temptation. On Friday night, we, we're going to skip Thursday, so Friday night, uh, the topic is the coming of the lawless one, and it's from 2 Thessalonians. We're going to set up the, the scene for a prophecy in Revelation, but um, Thessalonians, written by Paul, is written a little bit before Revelation, and so Revelation takes some of its um, theme in this area from Thessalonians, and it's helpful to, to study this one. Um, kind of to set us up for what we study on Saturday night, Revelation's sign of God. In the last days, the Bible says that there's going to be an, an indication, some kind of a sign that would tell us who God's people are, uh, the people that are truly following the Lamb wherever He goes, according to Revelation 14. And so we're going to study that subject, what is this sign, and, uh, and it's, it's cool because the Bible tells us that the world will know what this sign is at some point. So we're going to explore that on Saturday night, and that's going to set us up for Sunday night, and uh, this is kind of a trilogy here, the coming of the lawless one, revelation sign of God, revelation's forgotten history, and it's on Sunday night that we're going to explore a, 
um, a concept that people are super confident is in the Bible. They really think there's a verse in the Bible that says this, and we're going to explore what that is and find, we're going to explore the Bible to see if that verse actually does exist. And I think you'll be surprised at what you find. So then on Tuesday night, again, we don't meet on Mondays, but on Tuesday night, not this coming, but the following Tuesday night, we're going to, um, we're going to study a subject with apologies to Robert Redford called uh, A River Runs Through It. I don't know if you've ever watched that movie, Robert Redford. Some of you had quizzical looks on your face when I said that. Um, So the Bible describes a paradise in heaven, a paradise that has a river running through it. And uh, on Tuesday night, we're going to find that we can actually have the benefits of that river even before Jesus' second coming. And then on Wednesday night, a very interesting question what happens one second after you close your eyes for the last time? What happens to your, um, to your body? Um, and, and what, well, not so much what happens to your body, but what happens? Where do you go one second after you die? And uh, the Bible has tons and tons of information about this. I think you'll en- enjoy that ex- uh, exploring that subject. Okay, so tonight, the time of the end, part two. Uh, let's open God's Word with prayer. Father in heaven, tonight we're just amazed at how much detail you give in the pages of Bible prophecy. You lay a path right to your throne, and we just want to follow that path. We want to understand where it goes, and we want to especially understand you as we study it. Um, Lord, I ask, please forgive our sins, make us fit to study the Bible. When you speak, Lord, we, we promise we're going to listen, and we will follow the Lamb. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, I want to take you back to elementary school. Do you remember number lines and maybe thinking and, or, or even saying to your teacher, there's no way I'll ever use this ever again in my whole life? Well, tonight is your chance. Um, the, the numbers on the left of the line, if you remember, are negative numbers, and the numbers on the right are positive, and the, the orange line in the middle, that's zero. So let's do a little math. Um, and, and so, here we go. There it is. Minus 2 plus 3. What is minus 2 plus 3 on a number line? 1. Okay, so minus 2 plus 3 on a number line is 1, but what if we make this into not a number line, but uh, a timeline of history? Um, the, the numbers on the left aren't negative numbers, they're numbers from before Christ, B.C., and the numbers on the right are A.D., after Christ. So, in that case, if this is a timeline, what is minus three, or minus two plus three equal? Does it equal one? The answer would be no, because there is no zero year. We go from one B.C. to one A.D., so minus two plus three in, in years would be 2 A.D. And so here's the principle that I want you to grab. Um, it's when you are counting in, in time and going across the B.C. A.D. line, you have to add one in order to make up for the, there being no zero. Because in, in just math, there's a zero. But in history, no zero year. All right, so let's... Uh, Let's look at this um, a second principle that, that's uh, really important for what we're looking at tonight. In Bible prophecy, 
often a day is a symbol for a literal year. So a day is a symbol for a year. And uh, there's all kinds of, of um, all kinds of examples of this. For example, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is talking to the church in Smyrna and says that they're going to be persecuted for 10 days. But in actual history, that was the 10 years of Diocletian's rule from 303 to 313 AD. And so at 10 days in prophecy became 10 years, 10 literal years in their experience. Um, In Judah, they had sinned for 40 years, and God was illustrating this and told the prophet Ezekiel that in order for him to, to show this to them and kind of illustrate their sin, he needed to lay on his side for 40 days, a day for each year of their sin. And, and he said it this way, I have laid on you a day for each year. So, th- does that make sense? Um, there, there's a, a few other examples that you can find. Um, Israel, when they were, uh, went into the promised land and they, with doubt and discouragement, came out giving a bad report after 40 days of scouting out the land in Canaan, Um, They come back and they complain and they're like, oh, we can't enter the land. And God says, okay, don't enter the land. I'll give you 40 years wandering in the wilderness, a day for a year or a year for every day, I should say. All right, so here's the two principles. When you calculate dates from across the BC 80 line, you add, what do you add? One. One year. And in Bible prophecy, a day usually represents a year. Okay. So we're, pick, we're ready to pick up from last night. Just a little review, Daniel chapter 2 was kind of where we started uh, because Daniel 8, where we were last night, connects quite a lot with Daniel 2. So in Daniel 2, we have the head of, of gold is Babylon, the chest and arms of silver is Medo-Persia, the legs and, or the, the uh, waist is of uh, brass, and that's Greece, the legs are iron, and that's Rome, and then the iron keeps going down, but it's mixed with clay in the feet, and that becomes the broken, divided Western European um, uh, nations that come out of Rome. So that's the that's kind of the background, that's the review. And Roman Empire ends in 476 AD and fragments into this Western Roman Empire. Now we turn to chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we don't have all of these same symbols. Everything goes from metal to animals. And, and Babylon isn't represented because Babylon is already passed. So um, we start with Medo-Persia as the ram with two horns. And if you remember, one was higher than the other, and we found that that was Persia. And we didn't have to to guess about these things because Gabriel actually says it right there in in Daniel chapter 8, this ram represents Medo-Persia. And then uh, he says that uh, the the goat is Greece. Again, Gabriel tells us what it is. And this goat, uh, the prominent horn, do you remember who the prominent horn represented? What king? Alexander the Great. Excellent. And then it's split. The, the horn is broken and, and it, uh, four other horns come up in its place. And these were the, the generals that took over after Alexander died at a young age. And then we saw a little horn that came up from the winds, um, the Bible says. And this is a big subject, but we skimmed over it really briefly and uh, kind of ended with um, 
saying that we'd come back to the subject, to be honest. And uh, so, but we found that what we did look at, that this little horn covers the same uh, period of time as the legs and the feet combined together. So the little horn is both the Roman Empire and divided Western um, the nations of Western Europe. And then there's one more part, one more part. Uh, remember the, the Daniel 2 image doesn't end at the, the, the feet. There's something that happens after it. And the Daniel 8 beasts and horns doesn't end with the little horn. There's something that happens after it. Do you remember what that was? In Daniel 2, it's the stone. In Daniel 8, what's, what's the symbol there? You can find it in Daniel 8, 14. I'm testing you. <laughs> Judgment. Okay, so with the 2,300 days is what it says. For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Daniel 8, 14. And this part of the prophecy is completely different. There's no beasts. There's no metals. There's no horns. And, uh, and, and all it gives you is a time. Uh, a time and something that would happen. Uh, and, and this is the only part of the prophecy that Gabriel doesn't explain. He explains the ram, he explains the, uh, the goat, he even gives quite a bit of detail about the, uh, the horn, but about this one, he, he basically leaves it there. He says it's true, it's going to happen many days in the future, and that's, that's where he leaves it. And so Daniel gets upset, and he, he's uh, trying to figure it out, and he says, nobody can understand it. Nobody made sense out of it. And, and then I ask the question, does that mean that we can't understand it? And the answer tonight is going to be no. It's possible to understand this. And here's, here's a, a few clues that we found. Daniel chapter 8, verse 17 says that this vision refers to the time of the end. So that's a key the time of the end is part of this discussion. Verse 19 says that it's for an appointed time. And then we looked in what Paul says in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, and it says that he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. So we, we connected this idea of the time of the end, the appointed time with judgment. Um, and then uh, we looked at the prophecy itself where it says the sanctuary shall be cleansed, and we started exploring a little bit about the, the tabernacle in the wilderness, the sanctuary that God had the Israelites build. And uh, when you look at these evidences, the time of the end, the time appointed, the sanctuary cleansed, um, you find that, that everything kind of points to this Old Testament sanctuary. And, and it's one of the most important keys for understanding the book of Revelation, because you find the sanctuary language comes up over and over and over again. Even right here in Daniel 8, sanctuary language is everywhere. For example, he mentions the sanctuary. That, that's important. <laughs> and also, he uses um, the, the beasts that are represented here are the kind of animals that would have been used for a sacrifice, when we look at Daniel 7, you'll find that there's a bear and a lion and a leopard, right? These are not beasts that you would ever take to the sacrificial, uh, you know, to sacrifice on the altar. But a, a ram and a goat, absolutely. Those were things that you could sacrifice in the sanctuary. And that's not a coincidence that those are connected. Um, and uh, the last time we met, we took this tour of the Old Testament sanctuary, and we found that this outer courtyard experience represented um, the, 
Well, this first one, the altar burnt offering, represented Jesus' sacrifice as the Lamb of God. He took our sin away. But then there was the, the laver, and uh, the laver represents this washing experience and uh, that, that we are washed in Jesus and, clean, and cleansed from our sins. But then we went inside, and we found the candlesticks. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. This represented Jesus. Um, we looked at the table of showbread, these loaves of bread, that um, 12 of them representing each one of the tribes. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The priest also symbolized Jesus. And then um, we, we find this altar of incense, which symbolizes the prayers of the saints we found in Revelation chapter Oops, I just forgot. Uh, Revelation 6, I think. <laughs> we, we found that just a, a few nights ago. Um, it represents the prayers of the saints, but also Jesus says, uh, the Hebrews says that Jesus lives to intercede for us. So it's our prayers mingled with Jesus' prayers ascending before the throne of God, which we found was actually right there across the curtain. And uh, in the, the, the sanctuary on earth, the incense would rise up and, and come across that curtain because the curtain didn't go all the way up to the ceiling. And so the smoke could go up and float into this uh, throne room area of God. And the Ark of the Covenant represents that throne of God. And that's not a guess. The Bible actually tells us that in Exodus 25, 22. He says, I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony. So this is God saying, this is where I'm going to talk to you. This is my, my place of rulership here on earth. And if you study in the Bible about the guy named Lucifer, who later is known as Satan, the adversary, and the devil, Lucifer begins not as the devil, uh, but as a covering cherub, one of these two um, angels that stand beside the throne of God in heaven. And uh, in Revelation, John sees God on the throne, and he says this in, in chapter 11, verse 19, I saw that the temple of God was open in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And in Revelation 1, John sees Jesus like a high priest. And where is he standing? In the midst of these seven lampstands, which are just like the candlesticks right there in the, the sanctuary. In Revelation 5, Jesus appears on the, in the throne room of heaven, uh, but He doesn't appear as a human being. He appears as a lamb, as though it had been slain, just like on the altar of burnt offering. And in Revelation 8.3, it says, "'Then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar.'" He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. So this is, this is the um, descriptions of things like the, the altar burnt offering in the courtyard, and now we're at the altar of incense, which is right in front of the, the veil before the throne of God. And then in Revelation 14, it describes Jesus' second coming with this language. Another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you, for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he sat on the cloud and he thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. Now remember we talked about feasts and there's a lot in the, the symbolism there that connects with harvest. There's the first fruits where you bring some of the harvest to God. And so it's no surprise that when Jesus talks about his second coming, um, in several parables, he describes the kingdom of heaven like um, a field or like um, grain that's growing or like a harvest. 
And so here in Revelation, he describes the second coming as harvesting the ripe grain from the earth. Um, there's, there's a key here in all of these things that we're looking at in Daniel and Revelation. The sanctuary is a key component, or it's important to understand that so that we can understand what's happening in prophecy. The sanctuary isn't just a motif in Revelation and Daniel, though. You can find it lots of other places, like Isaiah 6. Um, Isaiah is in the temple, and, and he says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah is in the temple on earth, but he sees a vision of God in heaven, and he describes this place that God is as a temple. So this heavenly sanctuary is what we're talking about when we're exploring the, the book of Revelation. Where is God in heaven? Where is God in heaven? According to Isaiah, he's in the, the sanctuary, he's in the temple. So, um, oops, I, I didn't follow my, <laughs> didn't follow along with that. Sorry about that. Nope. <laughs> I should be where, the, where it says seven. Okay, hang on. Sorry. There. Okay, so last night we talked about the sanctuary. We talked about these seven feasts, and we pointed to, first of all, every article in the sanctuary points forward to Jesus. It's kind of a mini prophecy of what Jesus is going to do. He's going to die on the cross. He's, you know, the... the Holy Spirit at the, the um, labor. He's the light. He's the bread, etc. Um, so everything in there is kind of a prophecy. But then we have these feasts. And whenever you see seven, you see perfection or completion. And so this is God's, God's uh, complete plan when you see the feast. And the feasts are also about um, a prophecy of Jesus. And uh, in these feasts, we looked at the Passover, which Jesus is our Passover lamb, and uh, then we looked at the unleavened bread, which the leaven represents sin, and so the, the fact that they had to remove all the leaven from the house represented Jesus removing all of our sin at the cross. And so the Passover and unleavened bread are Jesus on the cross. And then the first fruits is the, um, the feast that happens just a couple days after the Passover, and the first fruits is a, uh, like you take the... the, the um, the first of the harvest, and you bring it to the temple. And this is Jesus, and he is called the first of the harvest, the first fruit of all those who would be resurrected. And so it's uh, Jesus' resurrection on that Sunday morning that it's illustrated in the first fruits feast. And then just 50 days after first fruits is Pentecost. And on Pentecost, God gave the Ten Commandments. And now in Pentecost, God takes the gospel and sends it to the world through the, uh, through the disciples. And then there's the Feast of Trumpets. But between the Pentecost and Trumpets is a long break for summer. Nothing's going on at the temple um, as far as feasts go during the summer. But in the fall, you have these three other feasts. And uh, in the fall, the feasts are the Feast of Trumpets, which is this solemn warning that happens 10 days uh, leading up to the Day of Atonement, which is a day of judgment. And uh, if you didn't make things right during the, the Feast of Trumpets, where you were called to repentance and confession, then, um, there, then you would be cast out of the camp, and you wouldn't be able to be part of the Israelites anymore. 
And, and I mentioned last night that this is every provision was made so that nobody had to be cast out of the camp. There was, you didn't have to have any um, accidental, whoops, I forgot that kind of moments. God provided for every sin to be covered. So it was really uh, uh, the, the rebellion, the I won't kind of an attitude that got you cast out of heaven. But there's this point of judgment, a decision time, and that's where the day of atonement was. And uh, then there was the Feast of Tabernacles, and this was when the Israelites would celebrate every year a reminder that they used to be wanderers, and then they got to the promised land. And this points forward to that time when we will be with God in heaven. And he says that he will tabernacle with his people. This is Jesus' second coming. And, and, and it's the promised land, right? That's the, the time when we get to be in that promised land finally. No more wandering around here on earth. But then we, we settled down last night and we talked a bit about the Day of Atonement. And in the Day of Atonement, we explored this idea that it's the Day of Judgment. Some people call this Yom Kippur. And uh, it happens 10 days after the Feast of Trumpets, that Feast of Warning. And the Bible says that everyone was supposed to search their hearts. And uh, for any person in Leviticus 23, for any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. So this is a serious, serious thing. And during the Day of Atonement, they had a special, special ritual where they would cleanse the sanctuary. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting. This cleansing or atonement is something that usually you describe of a person, and here it's describing it of a building. And we found that uh, it's because every day people would bring sacrifices to the tabernacle, they would confess their sins, and symbolically those sins would be transferred from that, that uh, lamb into the, the sanctuary. And and that represented Jesus taking our sin. But sin can't stand before God. It has to be, it has to be gotten out of there. And so uh, once a year, they did this day of atonement, um, uh, cleansing of the sanctuary. And uh, when we looked at this, we found that there's a lot of language, a lot of things in common with this moment and what Daniel 8 was describing the sanctuary being cleansed. Now, in this situation in Leviticus 23, it describes that there would be a goat, two goats actually. One of them was called the Lord's goat, and this represented Jesus. And the high priest, who Hebrews says is Jesus, takes that blood in before the throne room of God, the, the most holy place, and he presents that um, in to, to cover the sins of all the people. Um, and we mentioned uh, this one, the high priest is, is um, in there just one time, only ever goes into the whole, most holy place one time in the year. And, and that's the only thing that they ever do behind that veil in the most holy place. Hebrews 9 says, but into the second part of the Hebrew, into the second part, that's the most holy place, the high priest went only once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins. This is Yom Kippur, the day of judgment, and uh, there's a, a statement in Matthew 27 where it says, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So there is a moment when 
this veil that divides, that keeps the high priest from going into the most holy place, except for on the Day of Atonement, it's torn in two. And when, was, when did this happen? When was it torn in two? At the crucifixion, when the real Lamb of God does away with all of these services and fulfills all of these, um, these feasts. And, he, and, and it's not just uh, something that He does on the cross, but God makes sure that they see that this is no longer valid, that the whole system of the sanctuary is no longer necessary because Jesus has replaced it with the real thing. So now the Lamb of God is our high priest. We don't have a high priest anymore. We don't do sacrifices anymore because Jesus fulfilled all of that for us. Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus didn't go into the most holy place with his own blood as the high priest. No, he took his blood into the most holy place in heaven. And that's where he brought that sacrifice. And so now we get back to this prophecy, Daniel 8, 14. He said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So let me ask you, when was the sanctuary cleansed? What time of year was the sanctuary cleansed? It was, well, it was the Day of Atonement. It was a fall ceremony, yes. But the, the Day of Atonement, this is the, the moment where the, the earthly sanctuary was cleansed. So what is Daniel trying to tell us? Where is he trying to take us? Um, and I think this is pretty amazing. Gabriel doesn't answer the question that Daniel asks. Gabriel isn't like, sure, let me answer that for you. No, he leaves Daniel sitting for a little while. And the kingdom changes the Belshazzar ends up being killed, and Medes come in, and Daniel ends up being part of that government. And so it's in the first year of the first king of the Medo-Persian Empire that Daniel sits down and says, I think I've got things settled, and he begins to pray and ask God for help. He doesn't understand something, and he needs to know the answer. And, uh, and he prays for a little while. It's a beautiful prayer, the beginning of Daniel chapter 9. I'd, I'd encourage you to read it. And, and he's worried about something, and he pleads with God, please God. <laughs> and he points to a prophecy in, Daniel, in uh, Jeremiah where the Israelites would just be in Babylon for 70 years. And you kind of get the idea that maybe Daniel thinks that these 2,300 days are actually 2,300 years that they would be in captivity in Babylon. And he, he's pleading with God, please no, um, don't you remember that prophecy? And then it's in this moment of praying that Gabriel comes, and Gabriel shows up to answer his question. Verse 22, 21 and 22, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. So just here at the beginning, he says, this is Gabriel who had appeared to him in the, the vision. And which, which vision is kind of still on Daniel's mind? It's the one where he's got a question about these 2,300 evenings and mornings. It's the one in Daniel 8. So this is the Gabriel of Daniel 8, and it says, He informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. In other words, Daniel, you didn't understand the first time, but now I'm going to explain it. Now I'm going to give you understanding. And uh, for the rest of this chapter, Gabriel explains this, and he gives something to Daniel, another vision that um, is called the 70 weeks vision. And uh, just to remember the two principles that we had, um, first of all, when you cross the BC 80 line, you add 
one year. And in Bible prophecy, a day is often equal to a literal year. Okay. Now, um, if you were to look at human, uh, a human week, a typical week, how many days are in a typical week? Seven. Yeah, I don't know any weeks that have more or less days than seven. So if you, look, if you compare that with a prophetic week, um, how many years would be in a prophetic week if there's seven days in a, in a literal week? Seven years in a prophetic week. Okay, so let's get started. Daniel 9.24 says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So who are Daniel's people? The Jews. Yeah, there's no... This isn't an obscure idea. Daniel is a Jew. He's a son of Abraham. Um, and, and so his people would be the, the Israelites. And which is Daniel's city? Where does Daniel come from? He comes from Jerusalem. That's Daniel's city. That's the, the, the home that he's been taken from. So what Gabriel is saying is really important. Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people. And uh, this determined word is a Hebrew word called uh, chathak, and, and it, it just means to cut or to cut off, um, to set aside. Um, the other day I was with somebody and we were talking about this, um, this word, and I, I happened to be at his kitchen counter and his wife was cutting an onion. I was like, here, give me that knife. <laughs> so I, I took the onion and I cut a piece of that onion off, and I said, that, that's chathak, from the onion. This piece used to be part of that onion, but it was cut off. And, and that's the exact idea that this word is intended to give us. The 70 weeks are part of something else. They are set aside from something else, cut off from something else. And, and it's cut off for, it's determined for your people and your city. Those are the things that he's paying attention to. So how many days are in a week? Seven. And if you have 70 weeks with seven days in each, what's 70 times seven? 490. Excellent. So, in, uh, in this 70-week prophecy, we have 490 days or years. And this is important. Daniel 9 is not a standalone prophecy. It's a continuation of Daniel 8. So, that the only thing that we can cut it off from, the only other time period Daniel gives us is the 2,300 years in Daniel 8, verse 14. And so there's 2,300 years in Daniel 8, there's 490 years in Daniel 9. And those first 490 days are cut off from that longer prophecy. If you feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over again, what I don't want you to leave with is like a, wait, what did he say? (laughs) So forgive me for, for trying to repeat this. I just want to make sure that it makes sense and you've got the idea in your head. So he goes on in verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the prince shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. The, the, the first seven weeks um, the Bible says these things intentionally, and, and if you just look at the history in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll find that uh, this prophecy is almost immediately fulfilled in Daniel's time, uh, because it was seven weeks from the beginning of this prophecy, which I'll tell you about in a moment, seven weeks or 49 years 
from the time that Israel was let go from Babylon to the time that the streets and the walls were rebuilt. And it was a troublesome time. Just read the book of Nehemiah and you'll find out. Seven weeks, 49 years, that's the beginning. But then it adds 62 more weeks onto that and you end up with, well, what's 62 plus 7? 69. You end up with 69 weeks. And it's after 69 weeks that Messiah will come. Um, now, when does that begin? When does this whole thing start? I mean, if, if you were given a time period, um, if you want to understand it, you gotta, you got to know what the beginning is, or at least what the end is, and then you can work backwards. But where's the beginning of this going? And uh, it's not too hard to find. The historical record is right there in the Bible. You don't even have to go anywhere but the Bible. And, and uh, we can trace it in uh, books outside the Bible and match it up really nicely. There's even astronomical records that can tie it to this very date. It's not a question. 457 is the date that um, the, the Israelites were released. It's the, um, there's several decrees, but this is the one where everything kind of um, culminates and, and the Israelites are let back into Jerusalem and allowed to be their own government and allowed to rebuild the streets the, the, the temple is done by then, but the, the streets and the walls and everything else can, can get finished at this point. So that's 457 B.C. under the king by the name of Artaxerxes. And uh, he, he even gave them everything they needed. And if you want to read about it, Ezra chapter 7 is the place that you should go. So here's what we know. Gabriel said that there would be 69 weeks, which is 483 years, and then Messiah the prince. Um, so, what's, what, what's the date that we would get to? Remember, we have to add one crossing the, the, the date line there. So, 69 weeks, 483 years from 457. Take a calculator out. What date will you end up with? 27. Good. 27 AD is the date that, that ends this um, 69 weeks. What happens in 27 AD? 27 AD happens to be the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, and that's, again, something we can find in, in records like Josephus writes about it. Uh, does anybody know what happened in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar? According to Luke chapter 3, Jesus is baptized in 27 AD. So, we can, we can see a, a direct correlation. The 69 weeks, Messiah the Prince comes. And this is the time when Jesus is baptized and the, the Holy Spirit descends on Him like a dove and the Father speaks out in this thundering voice, um, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Have you ever wondered why Jesus spent so much time in obscurity? We see Him at His birth and then suddenly we're at His baptism. Why does He wait so long? Because Daniel chapter 9 had not yet come to that time yet. He had to wait till 27 AD because the Bible predicted that that would be the day when the Messiah would come. And so he did, um, 69 weeks after this Israel got to go back to Jerusalem. Um, now, if you uh, take another seven years, that's the last, the 70th week, if you add that onto this mix, uh, you get to 34 AD. So the, the end of the 490-year period is 34 AD. And what, what happens in 34 AD? Stephen is stoned. Okay, so Stephen is this guy. He's a deacon in the church. And uh, he's been 
he, he pleads with Israel one last time, and he says, please, won't you accept the Messiah? And he, he gives this uh, explanation of how God has led Israel throughout the history, and, and then he reveals that Jesus is this Messiah, and they don't like it. They reject him, and they, they take Stephen out and stone him to death. And that begins a persecution of the Christian church by the Jews, led by a guy named uh, Saul of Tarsus. And Saul miraculously is converted and becomes the Apostle Paul, writes a bunch of the books of the New Testament. But that persecution drives the Israelites, or the, not the Israelites, but the Christians out of Jerusalem, and they spread all over the world. And it's at this point that the gospel ends up going to the Gentiles. And in Matthew 21, Jesus, he predicted that moment when he said that uh, he compared the vineyard, the gospel to a vineyard. And he says that, that he gave the vineyard to some people, but they, they ended up murdering the vineyard's owner. The son of the vineyard's owner is actually what he said. And so he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to lend that vineyard out to other people who will do the works. Um, sorry, the kingdom of God will be given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. And, and that's what happens. In 34 AD, 70 weeks is over, and that special period that was set aside for Daniel's people, for Daniel's city, is finished. And so the gospel ends up going out to the Gentiles. And according to the Bible, everybody can be an Israelite now. Uh, Galatians 3, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So you and I, we can be descendants of Abraham. And then Romans 2, Paul says it this way, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in our flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart. Now, I, I want to be clear, God still has a special place in his heart for the Israelites, but, but he's opened up, and, and to be honest, it was never supposed to be closed, but he, he's opened up the whole thing and said, everybody can be part of this family of God. The Jews were supposed to be the light to the Gentiles, and they kind of messed that up, which is what this time that was cut off was for, to give them the opportunity to turn and to repent, but they didn't. They murdered the Messiah, and so God said the gospel to everywhere. I'll do it even if you don't want to. You and I have been grafted into this family, adopted into this family. Romans 10 says there's no difference between a Jew or a Greek. The same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. So the distinction is gone. The, The time is wrapped up and the prophecy is fulfilled. You and I are in the same place as any Jew. It's not about our genetics, it's about our heart. Do we believe in Jesus? Um, So, we've got that decree. Artaxerxes uh, sends them home in 457 BC. We've got the baptism of Jesus, the appearance of the Messiah, right on schedule, 27 AD. He closes that time up in AD 34. Um, And and then Daniel says something, Daniel 9 says something that is going to happen after that 62 weeks. Um, He says, after that 62 weeks, which is part of that 69 thing, Messiah would be cut off for other people, not for himself. So when was the Messiah cut off? It's the the, the middle of this week. It says this, after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Gabriel says that someone would destroy the city, um, destroy the temple. 
Um, and of course, that happened in 70 AD. The Romans came in, destroyed the temple. Um, Titus marched through, and, and uh, I told you that story a while back. So you've got this death of Christ. He dies on the cross, and uh, then Stephen is stoned, and uh, that ends the 70-week period. But then there's this destruction of the temple later on. And uh, it's, it, this is a pretty specific process, right? How much time elapses between 27 and 34 AD? Seven days, right? Now, how many, how many is, if you, if you go to the middle of seven, what is that? Three and a half. Do you know how long Jesus was doing ministry on earth before he died? Three and a half years. And uh, so we get to this point. He says uh, in uh, Daniel 9.27, he shall confirm the covenant for a week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and to offering. Um, so let me ask you this. Who brought an end to sacrifice and offering? I'm not asking who paused things or who caused disruption. I'm asking who made it completely obsolete. Who ended? Absolutely. Christ on, his, on, on the cross. It's clearly a prophecy of Jesus. And it says that he was cut off but not for himself, for other people. This is a prophecy about Jesus, not the Antichrist. And I say that because some people look at this prophecy about the um, ending the temple thing and stuff, and they say, this must be Antichrist. Um, this must be Antichrist because he's against the temple. Uh, but, but we clearly can find that this is Jesus. The Messiah is the one who is cut off. The Messiah is the one who ends that, and the, the temple is torn, or the, the curtain in the temple is torn in two. This is not the work of Antichrist. This is the work of fulfilling all of those ceremonies, and therefore the work of Jesus himself. So it's the middle of the week that Jesus is cut off. And, and the middle of the week is what day or what year? 31. Now, the other night, I answered a question about when Jesus died, and I just presented a few things about, well, if you look online, when did Jesus die? You'll find that theologians and scholars, they, they try to narrow this down a few different ways. You, you don't generally find them coming to Daniel. And, and so we end up with a little bit of confusion and ambiguity. They say that uh, if you take, you know, this public figure and that pub public figure and you line all of their, their lives up and, and when they were in public office, uh, Jesus would have had to die between 29 and 36 AD, somewhere in that range. But then they, they, they line up what the Bible says, that he died on a Friday, the preparation day, the sixth day of the week. And they say that that could only have happened because uh, the, the, the uh, new moon that would indicate um, the, the, the Passover um, that would have only been in 30 A.D. on a Friday or 33 A.D. on a Friday. And any other year, it wouldn't have landed on a Friday. And so I, I just kind of threw that out there and left it hanging and said we'd come back to that on a future night. Well, tonight's the night. The Bible says he died in 31 A.D. And if all the evidence seems to suggest that Passover could not have been on a Friday on 31 AD, then you're left with two conclusions. Either one, the evidence is wrong, or two, Jesus didn't die on a Friday. There's a third one, I guess. Um, this prophecy is wrong. Well, it does, is the Bible inaccurate? No, I think we can trust the Bible. Um, has prophecy demonstrated itself to be accurate so far? 
Yeah, so let's just say that we can trust this prophecy. 27 AD, the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, that's when Jesus was baptized. Three and a half years later, he died. Messiah was cut off, according to Daniel 9. And, and then the gospel goes to the rest of the world, and the time for Daniel's people in Daniel City is finished after that 70 weeks. That prophecy is accurate. So how do we justify that with the evidence? And here's what I'd say. This Friday thing is accurate. The Bible says it was a preparation day that Jesus died. And, and when you look at what, you know, astronomical people like NASA have to say about when things were, the new moon, um, and, and that, that whole thing happened about a Wednesday in 31 AD. And so if we just looked at that, we'd say, oh, well, it couldn't have been 31 AD. But you have to go back and say, how did the Jews look at things? And they were an observational calendar. They didn't have the kinds of things that we record today like NASA has. So what they did is they went out and they looked up and they said, can I see a significant sliver of the moon for long enough? I mean, if they just saw a tiny glimpse of the, a sliver of the moon for just a, a few moments or a few minutes, they'd say, no, that's, that, that's not a, a moon yet. That was, that was just an accident. So um, if, if you look at all the evidence for how this happens, the new moon on the calendar might show up and it might take a day or two before you actually see that sliver of the moon. And so, if you were looking as a Jew, Wednesday would have come around and you would have not even worried about it. Um, it would have been probably a Friday in 31 AD that they were celebrating the Passover. So, this, the, the scientific evidence, the evidence of the culture of the Jews at the time, um, they tie right into the story the Bible gives in 31 AD, Jesus dying on that preparation day. I think that's cool. There's, a, there's another thing that we should look at, though, and, and that's that a lot of people look at this 70th week, that last seven-year period, and they kind of they take it and separate it from the other uh, 69 weeks, and they just kind of throw it off into the future sometime. And they say that's, that's about the time of the end and has something to do with tribulation and whatnot. Well, here's, I just have to ask a question. Um, if I were to invite you to my house and uh, you were to ask, hey, how far it is, is it? Um, I'd, and I could say, well, it's, it's 70 miles. And so you plan about an hour, hour and a half to get to my house. And four hours into your drive, you call me up and you're like, hey, I thought you said it was 70 miles. And I was like, yeah, it is 70 miles, except for I, I forgot to tell you that there's about 2,000 miles between the 69th mile and the 70th mile. Does that make sense? Would we communicate that? No. And when Daniel is communicating a timeline, you don't go, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you know, 69, and then, and then pause for a few thousand years, and then, oh, there's 70, right? You don't, you don't do that in timelines. You don't do that in communicating. It just doesn't make sense, and I, I just, I don't think it makes sense here either. He didn't, he didn't forget to communicate a little piece. Uh, in Daniel 9.27, there's this thing that people say, this must be the Antichrist, and this is why they would say that 70th week is at the end of time. And it says this, On the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even unto the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So let me ask you this. When Jesus died, what was left desolate? 
the sanctuary, the temple. In fact, Matthew, if you want to understand the Bible, how do we, how do we find answers to questions we have from the Bible? We compare line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. So Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 23, behold, your house is left to you desolate. It used to be when Jesus started his ministry, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But now it's the end of his ministry and they're about to kill him. And Jesus knows that he's the fulfillment of this lamb and that there is nothing else that the the temple has to offer. And so he says, your house is left to you desolate. It's not his house anymore. His house is the temple in heaven now. And, And so now it's just the Jews doing their thing. It is not them fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus anymore because they end up crucifying the Messiah instead of accepting him. Your house is left to you desolate. So Um, on the wing of abominations. Do you think it was an abomination to murder Jesus? I would say so. Shall be one who makes desolate. How does Jesus make desolate? By fulfilling the prophecy. And why is it desolate? Because no longer is God in the temple, Um, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolates. So it tells us that Messiah is cut off, and then it says, that uh, a prince who destroys the temple. Now, Messiah is cut off. That's the, the cross, right? Who's the prince that destroys the temple? Does Jesus destroy the temple? He leaves it desolate, but he doesn't destroy it, does he? Who destroys the temple? Rome destroys the temple. And so this is part of the story. And that's what happens. 34, or, uh, 31 AD, Jesus dies. 70 AD, just a little bit longer. And Jesus even predicted it in Matthew 24. The, the, the temple would be destroyed, not one stone left on the other. And then, this is a, a, a thing that we find in Hebrew and sometimes Greek literature. They like to repeat themselves. Read the book of Psalms and you'll see it. They have these couplets and they'll say, they'll say it this way and then they'll say it a little bit different way, but it's exactly the same idea, just communicated with a few different words. And this is what Daniel does here and, and I think why it might confuse some people. So he first says, Messiah the prince will be cut off, and then the temple would be destroyed. And then in the next verse, he says, Messiah will end the sacrifices, which also is the cross. And then he says it again, one who makes the temple desolate, and you end up with this destruction of the temple idea again. So both the same thing, A, B, A, B, it's talking about the same actions. So is this last verse that we read about Antichrist? Or is this last verse that we read about Jesus again? I would say it's about Jesus saying the same thing twice. So now let's look at this again. We've got 457, and that's when the Israelites get to go home from Babylon. And then 69 weeks, 483 years later, you have Messiah the Prince. That's Jesus. He's um, on the scene, baptized. God says, this is my beloved son. He does ministry for three and a half years. He's in the middle of the week, cut off, according to Daniel 9. And at the end of that week, 34 AD, that time period, the 70 weeks is over. And Israel no longer is, or that that time period for Israel is no longer there. And that city is no longer there. And the, the, the Christians end up taking the gospel to the rest of the world, to the Gentiles. I mean, this is amazing. If this was all that the prophecy talked about, I think it would be really cool. But, but this is even cooler. Because remember, the 70 weeks is cut off. It's part of the bigger prophecy in Daniel chapter 8. And so, because it's part of this bigger prophecy, we have a beginning date for the 2,300 days 
and then the sanctuary shall be cleansed in Daniel 8.14. If, if the 70 weeks are cut off from the 2300 years, then they both start at the same time. Now, if you were to just add 2,300 years from 457 B.C., what date would you end up with? Remember, you have to add a day. All right, 1844, excellent. And this is a cool thing. Remember the feasts? You have the spring feasts, and they're fulfilled with Jesus uh, in, in the, the, the time when He was crucified and raised from the dead and all that. And then you have this period of time. And historically, that period of time is the Dark Ages, and after that summer, uh, that, that nothing happening in the sanctuary type of thing during that, that summertime in, in the Israel year, during that dark ages time, nothing's happening. But then you have the feasts of the fall. And suddenly, here's 1844, and the Day of Atonement, the prophetic fulfillment of the Day of Atonement, happens. Uh, do you know what this means? This means that the judgment has already begun. The heavenly Yom Kippur, the day of atonement in heaven, the hour of judgment has already begun. And that might be a scary thing. It shouldn't be because we talked about last night, who's our judge? Jesus is our judge. And who's our defense attorney? Jesus is our defense attorney. So do we need to be worried at all? No, as long as we go to Jesus and say, I need your help, can you please be my attorney? Then he's going to plead our case and he's going to win because he's also the judge. So we're, we're good. Daniel 7 even reminds us, judgment is made in favor of the saints. If you say yes to Jesus, then this judgment thing isn't something you should be worried about. And, and the cool thing is, well, look, look in Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10, and he describes this judgment scene. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. So at some point before Jesus' coming, judgment happens, and and then the judgment is over, and Jesus comes, and Daniel keeps going. I saw in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. And th this is the moment when the stone comes from the mountain and crashes into the kingdoms of men and pummels them to dust, and they disappear. And then it says that that kingdom fills the whole world, and it lasts forever, and no one is going to take that kingdom away. That's what Daniel 7 is describing, the judgment, then the second coming. And when Daniel 8 says judgment is happening, what happens next? What happens after that day of atonement? The Feast of Tabernacles, the time when God says that He will tabernacle with us, He'll make His home with us, and we will be His people, and He will be our God. That's the thing that happens next. So when we look at history and we see all these prophetic things that have happened, including the 1844 judgment, the end of that long 2,300-year prophecy, then what we can know for certain is that this right here, right now, is the time of the end. And the next thing 
the thing that's only a heartbeat away, in a sense, is Jesus' return and the time that we get to spend living with God. When Jesus comes, the judgment has to come before that because the decisions have been made. Revelation 22 says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to every man according to his work. Jesus can't give out a reward if he hasn't examined the evidence, right? And we talked about last night that this is not just Jesus that's exploring the evidence, but it's the angels. And they're saying, remember, we kicked out the devil. Why are you bringing all these people in? They sinned too. And so God's got to show them the evidence. And the advocacy that that Jesus does is, is not just before the throne of the Father, but it's in front of the whole universe. We are a spectacle, Paul says in Corinthians. And, and the Bible says that this judgment thing, that it's not just going to be a mystery, that people are actually going to know when it happens. In Revelation 14, it says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. I mean, this is, it's true. There's a time of the end. There is a judgment, and you and I are already there. And that means that the kingdom of God is just around the corner. If everything the Bible has predicted so far has happened, can we trust that this will happen too, that the second coming is just around the corner? I believe so. And, and when we look at the sanctuary, this, this uh, tabernacle thing, we get all these really cool details that help us to identify that. Yes, we're in the time of the end. God will not let human suffering last forever. There is an end to evil. And I think sometimes we don't understand how that works, and so we say, eh, it's just going to keep going on and on and on and on and on, and hopefully someday, eventually, it'll be over. But God, He lights the way and helps us see what the path is and helps us to know what the seasons are, so to speak. And we can know that Jesus' return is soon. And so the question I have for you is, where are you with Jesus? At some point soon, every, everything's going to be done. The books are going to be closed. They're open right now, but they're going to be closed, and, it, and the decisions will have been made, and, and it's all going to be done, and Jesus is going to come down in the clouds, and, and we kind of end up in, in one of two camps. We're either in the camp of people that say uh, to the rocks and the hills, please fall on us, and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Remember reading that the other day? Lambs aren't wrathful things, but, but we can get that perspective of God if we don't understand what the Bible describes God as. And we, we think, oh, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. So we're either there or we're going to be in the other camp of people who say, behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him and He will save us. Where are you with Jesus? Which camp would you like to be in when He does come? Tonight, if you want to stand with Jesus, then I'd like to encourage you to stand now with me as we pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, honestly, I'm astounded by the way that you predict all these things way in advance, that you know the future, and, and you've given us these indicators so that we can trust your word in every other way. 
And, and we want to be confident, Lord, like your word says we should, that when we give our hearts to you, that Jesus, he cleanses us and makes us ready for heaven. We believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Messiah. We believe that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that he's coming again. And right now at this moment, we're standing to say we believe. We believe that you'll forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. And we believe that through Jesus, our names are written in that Lamb's book of life. We know we're sinners, but we choose to believe and we long to see Jesus come. And it's our prayer, Lord, that he would come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.